Welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation and transplantation. You can always find us at thegiftedlife.org. I'm Lori Steele. I'm Joey Boudreaux. I'm Sarah Blakemore. Coming up on the Gifted Life today. We'll be talking about a community of compassion with Eye Donor Month. And we'll also be talking to a grateful eye recipient. And if you're struggling with letting people help you or asking for help, we're going to talk about it. Yeah, all that and more right here, the Gifted Life. Hang on. Here on the Gifted Life podcast, we are talking about the iBank Association of America, and he's back, President and CEO Kevin Corcoran. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you guys? Good. Big month in November for you? Absolutely. Uh, November is iDonation Month, which is our month to increase awareness about cornea and eye donation. Uh, And uh, so we've been doing it since 1983, Uh, President Reagan uh, commemorated Eye Donation Month, and uh, we've been running with it ever since. You guys do such a, a great job, and I love seeing what you guys push out um, in November, whether it be the theme, the graphics, the stories that you tell. Um, you're just so great at it. So uh, let's talk about that theme, which you guys are focusing on, and how we can play a part and help out. Oh, terrific. Thank you. So our theme this year is a community of compassion, and it's actually the same theme that we used last year. Uh, last year, we put the emphasis on community, and we were in the middle of COVID, and everybody was feeling very disjointed and separated from each other. So we wanted to talk about all of the people that make donation possible. I mean, obviously, there are the very generous, generous donors and their family members that make, you know, the, the, whether it's corneal tissue or organs or other bodily tissues available, uh, but there are also the surgeons and the, and the hospital technicians and the eye bank uh, employees and all the people that go through that process. We wanted to draw the entire community together. This year, we're using the same theme, but the emphasis is on the passion part of compassion, that because people have gotten, whether it's their vision or if it's an organ donation, they've gotten an organ, they're able to live out their lives more fully and follow the passions that are in their lives. So whether that's travel or reading or raising their kids and watching their grandchildren grow up, uh, suddenly it, it opens up doors that weren't available to them pr- prior to their transplant. Well, Kevin, you said something that really hit home for me. Uh, you know, you, you talked about the impact, you know, the passion and everything that, that people have and, and the impact that it has on so many, so many others' lives. Uh, the one thing that, that really struck for me was, you know, the grandparents watching their grandbabies grow up. And uh, I actually had a you know a very similar story. My my mom had uh, eye surgery two years ago on her left eye, and it failed, and she uh, lost complete sight in that eye. And she knew she had to have surgery, the same surgery on her right eye. And again, it wasn't transplant, but the but the the scenario and the situation is this result right. is the same. Mm. And uh, and so we said a lot of prayers, and she actually went to different different physician, different surgeon on this one, uh, a renowned surgeon here in, in Louisiana. And uh, she had her surgery on Thursday, and uh, and it took. Well, we didn't get word for an, an extra hour 
pass when we were expecting to. So of course we were expecting the worst. And then, and then you know, come to find out, it went. It was very successful. Oh, good. And so she could oh, see, wonderful. and she was able to see uh, immediately after. I mean, not not great. She's not going to be able to see great, you know, for, from here on out. But she can see, and it's been been getting progressively better. And for me to do this podcast today, she is actually babysitting my 11-month-old. <laughs> <laughs> so full circle. It's funny how this uh, the gifted life touches so many and, and, uh, and has so many far-reaching uh, connections. So, uh, so I just want to let you uh, in on that a little bit. But uh, you, you talked about last year and this year the themes, you know, compassion and breaking it up, community and passion, you know, toward donation. And of course... As a community, we all had such a major pivot, you know, in life uh, with COVID. And I am the chief clinical officer for, for LOPA. And of course, from an organ donation, I oversee the organ donation side. We had so many things uh, that we had to change from a process standpoint, so many things that we had to overcome, so many challenges. Uh, and I'm I'm curious. This is actually the first time I'm, I have a conversation with someone from the I Bank. Uh, and, you know, of course, you uh, being the president of of the I Bank Association of America. How did it impact? What were the challenges that you guys saw early on? And and uh, where do you stand now with it? Obviously, having peak, you know, surge after surge after surge. Yeah, we got hit real hard, real fast. Um, if you recall back in April of last year, as COVID was really uh, coming on across the country, there was a national uh, suspension of all um, uh, non-essential surgeries. And so all cornea transplants were canceled. So if you, we, we collect statistics from all of our banks, and if you look at our graph for the year, we went from you know, a normal month in, say, February to, like, in April, we only did 6% of the number of transplants we would normally do. So the only transplants we were doing were emergency surgeries. If somebody was in an accident or, you know, got, you know, scalding hot water or, or something else in their eyes and they needed an emergency surgery. And it really wasn't until June that we got back to close to what was normal. So over the course of the year for 2020, uh, Domestic transplants, transplants here in the States were down about 14 or 15 percent um, overall. The good thing is for most people, they're able to, you know, from the, the declines that we saw uh, in the spring, they're able to just postpone and reschedule their transplants later. Um, at the same time, uh, because we want to make sure that the tissue supply is as safe as possible, our medical advisory board instituted all sorts of new restrictions on donors and who we could receive tissue from. Um, so that has reduced the number of people, you know, the number of people that we have in our donor pool by about 18% for this year. Uh, so we're a lot more particular about um, checking up. We've always checked people's medical histories and you know, what their current condition is when they're, when they pass away and they're potential donors, but we're ruling out a lot more people than we had in the past. Uh, so the number of donors we have overall is about down about 18%. The good news is that even with that reduction, uh, fewer than 2% of all of the surgeries that are scheduled to be performed uh, have had to be rescheduled because there's a shortage of tissue. We have always had a surplus of tissue, and our eye banks cooperate very well from one eye bank to another. So, you know, I've got an eye bank in Baton Rouge. 
if they had a surgery scheduled and they perhaps didn't have tissue available in Baton Rouge for some reason, we have a system where they can send the word out to the other eye banks and say, I'm in need of tissue. And another eye bank in Kansas City or in New York or somewhere else can say, well, we've got some surplus tissue. We'll send that down to you in Baton Rouge and you can perform your surgery. So for patients, there's been very little real impact. But for the eye banks, we have certainly had to change our screening criteria and selection criteria. Uh, when we get tissue that we can't use for transplant, we do use that for education and research purposes. So I don't want anybody to think that tissue is going to waste. Uh, if we if we find that there's something in a donor's record that suggests that they may have been exposed to COVID, we will reserve that tissue and use that again for education or uh, research purposes. Yeah, well, that's a, an amazing uh, community system that you guys have, you know, to be able to get eye tissue from from Kansas City or other places to Baton Rouge, you know, when there's a a, a, a supply and demand uh, disconnect is, is really nice to see. Obviously, it's something we try to strive for as well, you know, in the Oregon community. So, Kevin, as we had talked about in the past, you know, for, on on uh, Gifted Life, you know, we, we talked a little bit about the Oregon impact, the, the impact of COVID, the virus actually on the organs. And, and one of the things that we've obviously seen uh, is that especially if they've got COVID pneumonia, the impact on the lungs is significant, mm-hmm. you know, so, so the, 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 the possibility of transplanting lungs anytime in the, in the immediate future of someone who is now testing positive uh, is, is very unlikely for, for the lungs. But we have seen that in with abdominal uh, organ transplant, liver, kidneys, pancreas, that it's not, or at least liver, kidneys right now, that it's it's not uh, living in, in that area. There's, the particles aren't living there, uh, and they can be safely transplanted. In fact, uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of, of kidneys have been now transplanted of people who are even inside the window of what we would consider infectious at this point. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about where we are as far as, you know, does it does it actually, uh, is there any infection in the eye? Is it being picked up in the eyes, in the corneas themselves, uh, and, and where we uh, see that shift as far as what we're learning? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, as I mentioned before, we have a medical advisory board which looks at the science for all aspects of uh, cornea transplantation. And EBAA has funded research and other organizations have funded research. And we have found that the virus can reside in corneal tissue. There is uh, kind of the jury is out on whether or not that tissue, that virus will replicate and cause the disease or if it just resides in the tissue. Um, So our medical advisory board is looking at that. In fact, uh, it will be meeting. We have a meeting coming up in New Orleans, actually, in November. Uh, and during that meeting, uh, our medical advisory board will uh, be considering perhaps uh, revising our standards. But right now, we are exercising the maximum amount of caution uh, because uh, we are fortunate that we have a surplus of tissue, so we can afford to be more selective uh, and still have sufficient supply of tissue. So uh, the standards are very restrictive now. Um, I don't expect them to relax a lot because, again, we want to be as careful as possible. Right, but right. Uh, that's something that's constantly being reviewed and, and taken into consideration. 
All right, Kevin. And how can we help during iDonor Month? Where can we go to get more information? We know that we ask folks to share information on social media, learn the facts. Uh, Where do we push people to help you guys? Absolutely. That'd be terrific. Uh, We have a a wealth of resources for our iBanks that are also available to everybody else in the donation and transplantation community. Uh, And that is at idonationmonth.org. Uh, it includes social media media tools, talking points, uh, media outlines. We have videos. Uh, we actually have three different videos this year. One is an update on a cornea recipient we featured last year. Her name was Zoe. She's four years old. Uh, she lives in Texas. She got a transplant when she was just a few months old. Uh, and we featured her last year, and we wanted to get an update on what's happening. She's now in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a tremendous old girl, very electric. Uh, and then we have another uh, cornea recipient story and then a cornea donor family uh, story. So we have three videos uh, that will be on our website at idonationmonth.org. Uh, there are also fact sheets uh, and talking points just to allow people to understand the full nature of uh, cornea donation. And of course, you know, while we are talking about it from the context of cornea, anybody who registers to be a donor is registering for eyes, organ, and tissues. So... Um, regardless of what it is that draws you to register as a donor or causes you to talk to your family members to say, I'm a donor. And so if something happens to me, this is what I want you to do. We'll also have a flow down effect for you know all three organs, eyes, and tissues. So it is life-saving and life-restoring, uh, whether we're looking at it from the eye, the organ, or the tissue standpoint. Perfect. A one-stop shop, idonationmonth.org. Kevin, we appreciate your time, and I want to let you know we're going to continue uh, this conversation with a grateful cornea recipient who tells us, my donors have given me my life and vision back. They have given me a better life. So um, that is exactly what we've been talking about with you. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Y'all have a good day. Grateful cornea recipient Melissa St. Pierre is joining the conversation here on The Gifted Life. Hey, Melissa. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you so much for asking me to do this. This is truly, truly an honor to be chosen to share my journey. Oh, we just we love what you submitted as well. Like you just seem so grateful and so passionate and you just want to talk about all these milestones and we just want to hear your story. Uh, So we are so grateful that you uh, chose us to tell that, too. Um, So tell us how this started. It talked about with maybe not taking the best self-care because you were taking care of everyone else. Exactly. And that's what I feel like happens so much in today's world. But if I I wouldn't do it any differently. Um, I was about 51 years old and for the last couple of years have been having to um, help my mom take care of my ill grandmother. She was 98 when she passed away. And definitely we have no regrets because we took care of her 24 seven. And she was basically blind when she passed away. But really, um, just, I guess, we brought her back and forth to doctors. But really, I guess at that point, there was like, no official diagnosis. Um, It was just kind of, um, you know, that was just something that she dealt with that she was just kind of, you know, needed assistance with everything. So I helped my mom and then my uh, my grandmother did pass away at the age of 98. Mm-hmm. So the next month, my mom said, you know, you really need to just 
go see, I've been having some problems with my vision. Um, you need to go take care of yourself because we had put everything else, um, made her our priority and put our, our health and everything on the back burner. So I've been having some problems with my vision. Things were hazy, smoky. I was having um, some glare issues, pain in my eye. And when I say hazy and smoky, I even, I told my husband, I said, our house is on fire at one mm. point. Our house is literally on fire. What is wrong with you and my daughter? Like, don't <laughs> see the smoke. Aww. And they're looking at me like, what in the heck are you talking about? It got to the point where like, I said, go up in the attic. There has to be some sort of fire. And my husband pacified me and he's like, there is nothing. And so at that point, you know, I was just like, I had no idea of what was going on. It was, you know, it was crazy. It was either my vision or something was wrong with, with me. Mm. So I did just go see a local um, optometrist. And after the examination, he looked at me and he said, has anyone in your family ever had a cornea transplant or have you ever heard of Fuchs corneal dystrophy? And I just looked at him and I'm like, I've never heard of either. You know, mm -hmm. Is that even possible? And he said, yeah, he said, um, I said, well, do I have it? <laughs> he said, oh. well, we're going to need to get you in with a cornea specialist ASAP, but do me a favor. Like, don't get in your car and Google it. My husband happened to be out of town at the time. So it was my mom and I, we were just like partners in crime. Mm -hmm. So we got in the car and the first thing we did, of course, oh, of course. Like, <laughs> yeah. and that's when I saw well, like, okay, the only really cure for this is the cornea transplant and through a donor and the act of donation. So needless to say, I was pretty shocked and just couldn't wait for that appointment, you know, to find out more. So uh, he got me in with Dr. Heigl, my cornea, cornea surgeon within two weeks, very soon. And once again, my husband was out of town. So my mom and dad here, I'm 51 years old, but my mom and dad bring me to my appointment. And we're in the appointment and Dr. Heigl, of course, says, uh, you know, you do have Fuchs corneal dystrophy. It is an inherited disease. Has anyone in your family ever, you know, and it had this? And I'm like, well, my grandmother just passed away a month ago and she was pretty much blind. I imagine that could have been what she had. And um, he said more than likely, and it's, I think it was more prevalent in, in, in females. So he said, you know, I have a lot to discuss with you. Are you here with anyone or have anyone here with you? And I said, oh, yes, my parents, you know. And he said, well, do you mind if I, if I bring them in? And I said, of course not. He said, I'm going to be giving you a lot of information. He said, you're not going to remember any of it more than likely. He said, but between the three of y'all, you, you will be able to remember bits and pieces and put the puzzle together and just kind of, I'm going to map out the process of what this looks like for you to regain, regain your vision. And he said, also, when he brought my mom in, um, he said, just out of curiosity, will you hop in the chair? And she said, well, sure. So she hopped in the chair and he said, uh-huh, you, you are showing signs of fuchs corneal dystrophy also. Not to the point that you know, I was, but it definitely confirmed, you know, that it is definitely an inherited disease. But 
he mapped out the process. Um, I've had eight surgeries, including the transplants. The first step was uh, I had narrow angle glaucoma, which could render you blind at any given second if the pressure built up too high. So he had to go in and do two iridotomies, which is basically, you know, punching a hole into the bottom uh, six o'clock position of your eye to to give it, I guess, like room to breathe or release that pressure in case it got built up too much. So we did that in both eyes. And then um, I had cataracts as well that needed to be removed. And that needed to be done before any transplant. So after the two eyes had the iridotomies done in and we did one eye at a time because Dr. Heigl just thought it was too risky to do a cataract surgery and a transplant surgery at the same time. So I had the iridotomies done in October. My first uh, cataract surgery on my right eye was in um, December. And then at that point, I was put on the organ donor waiting list with really, you know, you have no idea how long that could take and just for the best match possible. And um, you just kind of, you give them every number you can, you tell them if you're going out of town, whatever. And believe me, I, I didn't go anywhere. But when I say you just remember, you just remember, first of all, the shocking diagnosis of this condition. And then you remember the date, the time, and the place where you were at and what you were doing when you received that call that you did have a donor that was available. And you remember those emotions that you felt. One, you were so happy that, that you were about to receive like the best gift, the ultimate gift in the world. You also feel the grief for that family that just you know lost a loved one. So... It, it was a lot. It, it just, I don't think you could ever be prepared fully for, for those emotions and, and what leads up to it. But I got that call and um, on February 22nd and on the 28th was my first transplant. And the transplant went remarkably uh, well. Uh, you stay awake during the process because you can't, you know, you can't move. So if you're given anesthesia, as Dr. Heigl explained to me, some people tend to snore or they jump, you know, when they're in a deep sleep. So you have to be perfectly still. So you're awake during the whole process. And it's just kind of surreal, you know, knowing when the cornea is removed, everything kind of goes black. And then you see some a little bit just like uh, shadows a after that point, I, I think when they were placing the new tissue in. And then after that, um, you go home and you lay flat on your back for four days with short breaks in between only to snack or go to the restroom just to let that graft make sure that it takes and, and th that there's no rejection. But I do remember after like two or three days like a little pinhole just a little pinhole of light coming through and I'm like oh my goodness it that was just it was the most beautiful thing the greatest thing that I could ever like imagine because you in darkness in that one eye and then all of a sudden that little pinhole of light coming through and you know you know that there's hope and and you know that you owe it definitely to to a donor some you know that just made that that selfless decision and it's 
the the neatest thing about this is that you know we didn't have to be the same gender both of my donors are male uh one was 56 years old and one was 54 years old so uh, close in age to myself so they were the best matches but you know it just is is just life changing and dr heigl each visit looks at my corneas and he says you know they're beautiful. They're absolutely beautiful. I'm like, they are, they are, because I had two beautiful, two beautiful donors. So I did that on my right eye. And then after that, um, in August, after, you know, February, the first transplant, August, I had the cataract surgery in my left eye and then was placed on the organ donor waiting list at that point. And November 11th, I got the call. And I had my transplant in my left eye on November 13th. And it's just, it's surreal because, you know, you're sitting there and it's almost selfish to say, but you're like, you know, oh my goodness, I'm just ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. And then I'm like, I have to take a step back and say, you know, but no one is ready to lose their life or lose their loved ones. So how selfish of me to, to feel that way, but I guess it's just human nature that, you know, you just know how, I knew how great the outcome was with me, with my right eye. And I was ready. I was so ready for my left eye to get, to get my life back again. And that truly, truly is what has happened. This, the act of, you know, organ tissue and eye donation, it saves so many lives, but at the same time, it, it betters and enriches so many lives and it, and it gives you, it gives you your life back. Um, you know, I was to the point where my vision was just so terrible. No one even wanted me to ride in a car with them. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Like we're getting ready to hit somebody. Especially at night. They're like, just sit in the back seat. (laughs) Be quiet. Close your eyes. Be quiet. You know? And I was like, my daughter just graduated from law school this year. And I was like, am I going to be able to see her, you know, walk for, for her graduation? Yes, I did. Of course I did. And I look forward to to watching her walk down the aisle one day. Mm, Um, You know, it's just these people that I have never met have truly given me the ultimate gift, the the most wonderful gift that one could receive. And it's just that, that decision that was made at one point during their lives or that decision that was made by a family member at one point in their lives. To just give the ultimate gift is just, it still amazes me how impactful it is upon my life, not only my life, but my family's, my parents, my daughter, my husband, my friends. It's just, it's amazing how it has just, you know, just made such a great and definite difference in my life, along with everyone that I love. Oh, I, I can hear the passion. I can hear <laughs> the excitement uh, in your voice. And then I was also thinking like, oh, my gosh, you had all these major things happening <laughs> to you within just a couple of weeks. And then you get this diagnosis, yes. your mom. And so did you guys know about donation? Were you pro-donation? Was this like a whole new topic you had to learn about? Um, it was. When you hear it? it was. I was an organ donor. No one else in my family were organ donors. And it was just a whole big process of learning about the condition. And just, you know, as soon as I be, 
became like uh, aware of my diagnosis, you know, everybody in my family, you need to sign up, you need to sign up now. Like, and this is just like making them aware as, as well as everyone else that, you know, you owe everything to the donors. Um, and that the bravery and strength to, to become a donor and, or a family to allow their loved ones, organs, eyes, tissue to be donated in the midst of their grief is just the best thing that, or, or just the most selfless thing that you can do for someone. And I've done countless hours of research on my condition, and I continue to do so to create awareness for those who are traveling currently on this journey and for those that may have to travel down this path at some point in their lives. Um, just personally, I know that my mom probably will. My daughter has terrible eyesight. She's in her 20s, but they say that you, you start exhibiting signs in your 30s. So, you know, I hope and pray, you know, that her vision doesn't take that same path that mine does, but more than likely so. And it's kind of selfish on my part, but I want them to be able to, to have the same opportunities that I am having to have my, to get my life back. I got my vision back. I got my life back. I want that for them. I want that for, for everyone, you know, to be able to have that, that same opportunity. Um, you know, they say, or, or organ donor can save eight lives, but besides my life, it saved my entire family's life. I feel like, you know, just by taking care of me. <laughs> I was going to ask if to, just to summarize, you know, if, you have, uh, what message would you give to someone who's thinking about saying yes to organ donation, but mm -hmm. maybe not to tissue and eyes because they say, well, organ donation saves lives and tissue and eyes may not save lives. What, what message do you have to, to, to them if they're making that decision? Sure. No, I, I totally, I totally understand that question. You know, when I started getting, um, my vision back, I realized like, everything was just vibrant. The grass was green. I could see the trees. The sky was blue. The sun was shining, just like it's shining now every day for me. So besides saving a life, right, I still would have lived on, but the quality of my life is just, just unbelievable due to someone's selflessness. Because Everything that I see today, my donor is living on with me and seeing this, I feel as well. They're with me every day. I give thanks for them every day. They're with me. They're present with me every step of my life. They share in the joy of everything that I'm able to experience. And it's just that we have so many more memories to make and cherish. And I feel like my donor, my donors, are there to, to witness those with me. And I will never take that for granted. Um, with my eyes, like I said before, I will see everything that there is to see. We will do all that we can, and they are with me every step of the way. And I will cherish their gifts until I'm no longer able to cherish them. And I hope one day I will definitely pay this forward and can maybe make an impact in someone's life like they have made in mine. And, you know, when we say we're from the deep South where 
One would literally give you the shirt off their back to help someone in need. My donors ultimately gave me the greatest gift. They gave me the shirt off their back. They gave me themselves. Um, and like we say, there are no strangers in life, just friends and family that we haven't met. Well, I hope one day I've written my letters. I hope one day I could meet my donors' families and thank them in person. And ultimately, one day in heaven, I'll meet my two special angels, my donors that gave up themselves to me so that I could continue to, to have the life that I do have now and hope to have for many, many more years with my family. Oh, Melissa, I love it. I can see why our partners at the Baton Rouge Regional Eye Bank suggested you share your story. Thank you for Thank you. saying yes. Thank you for joining us. I loved your quote. I got my life back. So amazing, especially during National Eye Donor Month. If you want more, eyedonationmonth.org. Here on The Gifted Life, we take a moment for mental health. Yes, today I plan on learning a lot from Sarah. (laughs) It's about how to let people help you. I'm already nervous. All ears here. Hot topic, right? And, you know, before we got into this, we were talking about it's it's one or the other. Some people are so resistant and are so afraid to ask for help. And some people are really great at it. So this is really for the people who are very uncomfortable with asking for help. Mm -hmm. So why does this happen? So essentially in the U.S., we're going to talk about U.S. specifically for societal and cultural norms, but we grow up believing that the less you ask for, the better. So we're very driven in parenthood to create independence and to create, we're very excited as parents to let kids like feed themselves, walk to the bus stop, do all these things independently, but sometimes it can go too far to where it's led into feelings of imposition and burden when you do ask for help. So there's a lot of guilt and shame if you need help. Why is that? Are you weak? Can you not handle this? Are you codependent on your loved ones? All those feelings of shame have just kind of developed. And for a lot of people, it really sticks. I don't know about y'all, but I'm getting better. But I used to be very independent. I I felt a lot of pride in being independent. So when I couldn't, I, I would just crumble. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I have the, the three kids, so mm-hmm. we, we kind of had to do like, here's my white flag. I can't do everything. And so mm-hmm. can we do carpool in the neighborhood or, or something like that? And mm-hmm. it's just trying to find the time to coordinate, which makes life much easier. But if nobody would have taken that first step, <laughs> then I'd probably be crying. <laughs> yes. And I remember this one time specifically in college, I was so prideful that I was paying my rent, that I was doing all this stuff. I was short like $50 on my rent once. And I called my mother crying. I couldn't even get the words out that I just needed her to give me $50. And then once I did, and she was like, of course. And she was like, thank you for coming to me. It made our connection stronger, actually. Oh. And, and she probably gave you extra. She gave me a little bit extra, not much. <laughs> and then uh, during the storm, uh, you know, we had Ida in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, so my husband works in emergency management. So it was me and three kiddos. And um, the neighbor had to come over and help me, you know, tie things down. I need to help with the generator. Like, it, it was just like, I'm vulnerable. I'm here. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm trying. Um, but it was nice to have that support. And people were so happy to do it. So I'm like... Boo on Louisiana for hurricanes, but yay for Southern hospitality sometimes. Um, but I just put a shout out like, I just 
can somebody <laughs> come? And then they came running. Right. And what if ha- what would have happened if you didn't? You would just have been so overwhelmed, so stressed out. I think the point is, is that we can grow stronger and closer to the people who can help us. Mm-hmm. And it makes you feel so inspired by your community and empowered to ask for help and to give help. And I think the moral of the story really is that if you can't receive with an open heart, then you're certainly not giving with an open heart. Mm-hmm. So, and that's from Brene Brown, shout out, my favorite person in the world. Yeah. But I think that's really it. We need to challenge this idea that it's a burden when you ask for help or things or something. Because if we want to give and if we want to ultimately be a part of our society, we also have to be able to receive mm-hmm. openly and with grace. Yeah, that's the you mentioned burden, and that's my biggest thing. Mm-hmm. It, I, I find it much easier to ask for help if if I'm helping someone else. Mm-hmm. So, but if if the help is for me, I I hate to burden someone else mm-hmm. because I know that they've got a lot of issues, or mm-hmm. maybe they had to deal with something similar before, and I wasn't there to help them for one reason or another. So, I, it, there's a guilt and a burden in that. For yeah. Me. I think if we assign a value to asking for help instead of just assigning burden and position, all that stuff, if we assign, I know if I ask for help, it's going to enrich our relationship. It's going to enrich my connection with this person. They're going to feel happy to help. I'm going to feel happy that I received help. I think assigning the value to that and just just shifting the narrative in your head is going to be really helpful for me, too. And I always say, like, call me if you if you need help. Like, call me if I can do anything. Mm-hmm. And then you really don't get so many. Hi, your I way. need your help. Yeah. And then I'm and then I'm kind of like, well, where would I find the time? Oh, we just find the time. Like, you're just gonna find the time. <laughs> it's gonna work. Yeah. All right. Ask for help. It's okay. Uh, maybe you have a topic you'd like Sarah to cover. Just email us info at thegiftedlife.org. In our question and answer segment today, can you still have an open casket funeral if you donate? your corneas. And we get this a lot. So I, when I work with families, I explain the donation process and the recovery process. And we tell every family that regardless of donation, anybody can have an open casket funeral. And for corneas specifically, um, they do place a cap so that there isn't any delays in funeral arrangements or we minimize any visual changes. So that's you know, that brings a lot of comfort to our families. I know that for sure. So yes, Sarah, just to add to that, of course, working with funeral homes as we so closely as as we have over the years, uh, I've been informed that they have to put a prosthetic in regardless because the eye is aqueous to maintain the same shape for the viewing, they would be doing it regardless. So we're just doing it a step ahead, you know, so it's, it's it's very similar. All right. Thanks, guys. Maybe you have a question for us. You can give us a call. 504 648-3477. In every episode of The Gifted Life, we honor a hero. Today, we honor Brenda Abshire Myers. And we learn about Brenda from her family. A wonderful wife, mother, grandmother, daughter, sister, aunt, cousin, and friend left this world in 2005 as the result of a stroke and brain aneurysm. She gave so much of herself throughout her life that it seemed so natural for her to make the decision to be an organ donor, a decision that she made in the late 70s. She was always extremely adamant about her wishes to be a donor. So when the time came for her family to be questioned about donating her organs, the decision had already been made by her. 
Brenda's family is very proud to know that her liver, kidneys, and corneas went to five different recipients in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Mexico, and they are very sure that she would be pleased as well. Brenda never met a stranger and touched the lives of everyone she ever got to know. Brenda's family made a quilt square in her honor. You can see it and learn more about her on our website, lopa.org, on the Heroes tab. Now we pause and say thank you to Brenda for the gift of life. And that is episode 173 of The Gifted Life. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember, you can always register to be an organ, tissue, and eye donor anytime. Registerme.org. Special thanks to Kevin Corcoran for coming on and telling us a little bit about uh, Eye Donor Awareness Month and for Melissa St. Pierre for exemplifying just why it's so important to celebrate it. Wow. She was mm-hmm. amazing. Oh, I just loved her storytelling and yeah. her passion. Like you could hear it. Oh, yeah. Oh, I love it. And, and you'll see her more um, hopefully here on The Gifted Life and in our communities here in Louisiana. The best place to find us, guys, is at our website, thegiftedlife.org. You can listen to any of our episodes on the website or wherever you like to listen, whether it's Apple, Google, or Spotify. If you do listen on Apple, go ahead and give us a five-star rating and subscribe so that others can find the podcast. On social media, our Facebook is The Gifted Life Podcast. On Twitter and Instagram, at Gifted Life Pod. Please follow us, comment. We'd like it. And we ask that you go out and do something you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen. Until next time. This is a production of LOPA, or the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreaux, and Sarah Blakemore. Our executive producer is Kirsten Hines. Producer is Shalon Carraway. Intern is Rebecca Ranham. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez. <laughs>